A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the fast of their feasts, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part made him trust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no, no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Over the years, I've heard a number of people say, people in particular that may not have specific religious commitments, say that they want to know God, they have this instinct to know God, or we use the language of desiring to know your creator. And I understand that, and certainly um, theologically can explain that. But when I think of my own experience, when I was not a Christian, I would not have used that language or really resonated with it. The, the idea of uh, whether or not God existed was a hard enough concept, but to, to think of knowing God, um, it would seem to be a strange desire to have. And so I, the language that I would have used at the time might have been more wanting to know that the universe is not random. What does it mean to be a good person and have a meaningful life? Those were the, the kinds of questions that I now see actually were not entirely different, but the, the vocabulary was different enough. So when I started reading the New Testament, the book of John was very helpful in many ways, but there were a number of things about it that I didn't like. And Jesus keeps making these kinds of statements to say, I am the door, no one enters through me. I am the way, no one can know the Father apart from me. And rather than thinking Jesus was offering me something valuable, I sort of, at best, maybe thought it was a bit limiting and um, maybe poked something in me that in, without this desire to know God, I wasn't seeing that he's offering a way to know God. I just thought he was trying to maybe fit me into a box. Um, so I was personally much more interested in, in my theological teachings in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. What good is it to forfeit your soul and gain the whole world? Those were the sorts of things that made me think Jesus is 
wise teacher. But Jesus is saying that there's something about me as a focal point through which you can encounter God. Uh, I didn't understand it until I understood how things fit together to realize that Jesus is actually claiming something profound, something that is woven into each of us, even if we have different experiences, even different questions, different vocabulary. There's something in us that says we want something, and Jesus is saying, well, I can give you that, and I can give you more, and therefore, when you follow me, I will, um, it will be a bit of an adventure. I will be expanding what we're doing. When we look at this passage today, Jesus coming to the temple, on the one hand, it's a simple story. He shows up, and he's driving out the money changers and those who are selling animals. And so there's a lot of just details there that are interesting for us to pick up on. But without understanding both the, the history of the temple itself, but also what kind of story John is telling. Uh, because this feels like a different instance. There's Jesus saying, look, I'm the door, come to me, but then here's me in the temple, I'm just angry about what's happening here. But John is actually telling us the same story. And what's interesting about Jesus driving these people out of the temple and overturning tables, and when you look at the four Gospels, each uh, highlights some aspect of Jesus and, and puts a different angle on what he's doing. But one thing that they all have in common is all of them reach their climactic point in the suffering and death of Jesus and his resurrection. It's clear that that is the central point of all the Gospels, and therefore, the climax of the entire Bible, that becomes the coherence point to make sense of everything. And so all four Gospels have that. There's other things, so in the last sermon in John, we at Jesus turning water into wine. Perhaps one of the most famous stories that people know of, John's the only one who writes about it. Or the parable of the prodigal son, where there's uh, somebody who leaves his father and then winds up coming back and begging for forgiveness. One of the most famous stories, Luke is the only one who records it. Every one of the Gospel writers records Jesus showing up at the temple and turning over the tables. That signals that this is more than just about Jesus losing his patience. Some people look at this and they're like, oh, Jesus gets angry. That's the lesson. And it's not that we can't draw something out about Jesus' character that's meaningful, but it would be odd for the gospel writers to say, oh, we're going to include this in our story for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as Jesus at the end of his ministry comes to, the, to Jerusalem in the very last week, this is his, uh, what they call the cleansing of the temple is part of that climactic moment. John tells us that he's weaving his story together to, to show us how to find life. So John has this story at, at the start of his gospel. Um, but I want to have that in mind as we look at it. So um, there are lessons that we can get from it, but if we don't understand how this fits the deeper story, we might miss that John's goal in writing this gospel that we would have life. What we're getting here is Jesus is coming to build the new house of God. And in that, he's going to give life. And here's a sign that the, the old house of God is passing away. That, I think, is much more significant if you want to understand the bigger picture of what's happening here. So in looking at the questions, or, or I want to raise three questions to help us grasp what God is trying to show us in this passage. John says, I'm writing these things, uh, these signs that Jesus has done so that you have life in his name. But what do we see here that would give us life? So first question, how do we understand what God is showing us? So this passage is here for us to see something. How do we understand what God is showing us? I'm beginning there because one dynamic in this passage that's not essential to the teaching that's there in the background 
is here's another instance of nobody understanding what Jesus is doing. So when he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days, uh, they think he's talking about the building. So the, the skeptical religious leaders, the powers that be, misunderstand Jesus, that's part of the passage. But John, our narrator, he doesn't say we misunderstood Jesus, but he says it was only later <laughs> that we remember what he was, did, did, and that's when we understood. So in verse 22, he says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now he's talking about his disciples, the people that are committed, they're not skeptical, they're trusting, and they're learning, they have access to Jesus. This happened, and he's saying, we, we didn't understand, we, we thought this meant something, but after he was raised, we understood it meant something different. And while this verse is not comprehensive, and so I don't want to, you know, sometimes there's the, here's the key to understanding the Bible, this is not the key, but this will open up a lot. What is said in verse 22, after Jesus was raised, see, so John says, I'm writing, Jesus did lots of signs. We see that at the end of today's reading, but I'm writing about some of them. There happen to be seven. But the ultimate sign in John's gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's life-giving. So John says, I write that you have life, look at this, life in the dead. After the resurrection, it's, it's a, an event so transformative and profound that then it sheds light on everything beforehand. And the disciples were re-understanding everything Jesus said and did from a new perspective, and from that perspective, they realized a lot more was happening than we thought. We thought Jesus just hated hypocritical religious leaders. But now they're saying, we look back and we saw something different. And so, what's happening here? Here are two popular takeaways that are not entirely wrong. But I don't think they're the fundamental ones. One is, this, uh, one popular takeaway is this is a critique on religious people, finances, greed, the church becoming a business. Now, that is actually a very legitimate critique. Uh, certainly in align with Jesus' teaching, but on your next vacation and visit to a mega church, when you walk in and you want to help yourself to a cup of the coffee they offer before the service, um, and they want to charge you $2 for it, before you knock the coffee cups off the counter, <laughs> you wonder why they're turning God's house into a house of trade. It might be okay for church to subsidize the coffee drink. I don't know. It's, we have the luxury of, of uh, mocking them because we don't do that. But, but I think we need to be careful not to be so simple. Now, in a more detailed way, every church, including ours, should look at our budget, look at our priorities, and say, Lord, are we taking people's money for luxury for ourselves? Are we making practical decisions coming from the business world that have fundamental alter for church? We constantly need to keep thinking that, and this passage helps remind us of the importance of that. There's something more going on. A second thing is uh, that a popular takeaway is Jesus gets angry. And where we have to be careful here is, okay, Jesus does get angry. In, in none of the accounts is Jesus' anger named as an emotion. And so the lesson is not Jesus gets angry, but what they remember is Jesus had zeal for God's house. So if you, if you want to go into what Jesus was thinking, 
Um, sometimes we think it's just a, an act of impatience, as if Jesus was wandering around with his disciples and was like, you know, I heard so much about this temple. And one thing on earth, are they, there are animals in here, this place stinks. And then he just lost it. And then afterwards told his disciples, you know, everybody gets a little angry at times. Now, certainly, some of us, we imagine where Jesus would be today, a picture of him standing in Times Square without shoes, a flower in his hair, and holding a sign saying, Free Hugs. And this passage reminds us, yeah, no, Jesus is a little bit more dangerous than we're aware of. There is something in him that, that needs to sharpen out his character, his picture. So that will challenge some of us. But on the other hand, what's happening here is not he's one more person who loses his cool, as if this was incidental. What's happening here is a climactic moment that has a history behind it, which we're going to talk about next. But I just want to make sure that we don't get confused. The question that the religious leaders asked in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What things? Getting impatient. Come on. We're Sadducees here. What sign is there for your being an impatient person? What sign is there? You're saying you're showing up as if you wrote one and owned the temple. How do we know you have the right to do this? That's actually a little bit more profound than how Jesus regulates his emotional life. And I think he was misunderstood in terms of what he was doing, but it was recognized that what he was doing clearly signaled something major. Why are you showing up and doing this? Who are you? And we don't want to miss that. And so, uh, as we look at this passage in verse 17, his disciples remembered. So, so after the resurrection, what are the kinds of things they remember? Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that zeal, that, that sense in which the holiness of God is not being recognized by how the, the temple is evolved. The, the care for God's people, as, as all nations are supposed to come and pray, and now we can't hear each other over the sound of the animals. It was a zeal that Jesus had. But that phrase, when they remembered, they didn't simply remember that fact about Jesus, they remembered that it was written. There was a written Psalm 69. You go read Psalm 69, I stand for your people, but the people are against me. And yet, zeal for your house consumes me. Jesus is showing up. As the, as the fulfillment of this one who has zeal for the, the house of God. And they remember that after the fact. It started to make sense. And so uh, they understood the fulfillment of, of the story that um, Jesus, you know, when, when the Pharisees or the Sadducees, whoever's in charge of the temple, when they said, what sign do you show us for doing this? It actually is a sign leading to his resurrection, if you understand that in that context. The people demanding a sign don't get one. And yet John is saying, I'm, I'm writing this book, collecting for you some of the signs. The, the sign here uh, about what Jesus was doing was not a miraculous sign, like turning water to wine or raising Lazarus, or these signs that John is showing those who are wanting to learn about the unique presence of God in Jesus. This is a prophetic sign. It's like God telling Jeremiah, pack your bags and walk around the city. So people look around, what is this prophet doing? Yeah, that's what's going to happen. You're all going to be packing your bags soon. Babylon is coming in to take you away. Jesus shows up and he starts to drive out of the table, uh, drive out of the temple, um, expressing a measure of displeasure. In the prophetic tradition, what he's doing is he's, 
He's showing them what is happening in their midst. And therefore, in a light of the resurrection, we know that uh, as the story unfolds that, that Jesus was not saying he was going to destroy the temple, but he was saying that a sign has come so that it will end. And so he never tells his followers to do anything against the temple, but within a generation of his crucifixion and resurrection, the Romans choose to do it. And so this sign anticipated, I'm calling you back, and you're not listening, and you are no longer going to find God here. How we know that is the story of the Bible. <laughs> you read the prophets, you read the writings, you read the story of the temple, and you, you read Jesus' teachings, and you do so humbly and prayerfully, and the Spirit illumines so that if you trust the, the crucified and resurrected Jesus who sends the Spirit, it will make sense of the story. So the, the second question that I want to raise is, well, what is it God would have us see? So how do we understand what God is showing us? Well, we read the Bible humbly with the Spirit, but in light of, of this life-giving moment of Jesus. But now, uh, this question, what is it God would have us see? And I now want to sort of tell the story of this temple, the backstory. How did we get here? Um, because even if you've been a Christian and a Bible reader for a long time, uh, it's the kind, these are kind of boring historical notes. They're not necessarily relevant for us, but the the story of the temple is really important throughout Scripture. So the book of Exodus, it's about bringing people out of Egypt, and yet, I didn't calculate this beforehand, but it feels like the last third of it, I could be wrong on that number, but something like that is instructions for building the tabernacle. You know, Ezekiel, the last eight chapters. You know, the reign of Solomon, everything is focused on the temple. Um, the temple is really important. But there's, a, there's a, a signal here that something is wrong, and, and the hint of it is in the phrase in, in verse 20, the Jews, and, and in John, when he's talking about, keep in mind, John, Jesus, everyone's Jewish. When he talks about the Jews, he's typically referring to uh, the religious leaders. He says, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Uh, that number 46 is an interesting one. 46 years to build this temple. Hasn't this temple been standing quite a long time? And that's what I want to sort of catch us up to speed with some, some uh, prequel work here. The story, the evolving story of how we got to this temple, um, actually people that do sort of uh, theology will recognize in Genesis 2, <laughs> the Garden of Eden. The story sort of begins there, a place where God is present with his people, humanity, Adam and Eve. And he gives them a task of, of he, they, they are present with God, but then they are to, to extend the garden. The Garden of Eden should get so big that it covers the earth, so that the whole earth is a garden. That's the human task. So they meet with God, and they are in God's image, and everywhere they go, God will be seen. But if you're familiar with that story in Genesis 3, they turn from God, and what happens is they're driven out of Eden. And then uh, the door is locked. They're not coming back in. You could read about this in Genesis 3. So now you have humanity not present with God. And what is this dangerous world where it's no longer about God and his image bearers, but it's about corrupt people um, whose cynicism plays out in our murder and our wars and these various things? Well, uh, you find what happens when somebody else is in charge. You read Exodus. There is uh, Pharaoh oppressing God's people. God brings them out, and in bringing them out, what makes this nation unique is not simply that I heard you, I had compassion, I delivered you, 
but I will be in your midst. Remember the charge to, to Pharaoh, it, you know, Moses is the prophet. God says, let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh says, no, they're going to stay here and they're going to serve me. Bringing them out to worship God was essential. And so when they're brought out, they're given the Ten Commandments, and then they're given instructions for a tabernacle, a tent, but not like any tent. This tent had to be carefully designed, and there had to be all these rules and regulations. So the whole book of Leviticus, how do we regulate the priesthood and how service is done because this place is special. So there's a holy place that only God is, and then there are these barriers around, but, but the entire nation, the, the, the moving camp through the wilderness is meant to be organized around the fact that God is in their midst. So God leads them at night with a pillar of fire, during the day with a pillar of cloud, but this nation is unique that God is in their midst. But in a way that they didn't see God, they didn't literally hear the voice of God, but they had these mediators, these priests, but there it is. So then you get to David, the king, and David settles Jerusalem and says, I will come up with a permanent place for God's king and God's uh, theocratic nation. And here I am building this great house for myself. I should be building a permanent place for God. And it's interesting, God says, thank you. Please don't build me anything permanent. And, and the concern there is because David, though he had a heart for God, he was a wise leader, he was a sinful person, he was a man of violence, and so God says, you are not the one who will build my house, but your son will build my house. And who is his son? It's Solomon. Now, go back and reread the story. It wasn't obvious that it would be Solomon. Solomon wound up doing what many polit political leaders do in consolidating his, uh, his reign. Solomon was a great figure, did wonderful things, but he's another imperfect figure. What becomes clear is he's not the son of David who would build God's house. Well, actually he was. He was the son of David who became the king and he built the temple. And God honored it, God blessed it, God was present there, but you see the echoes when he dies and his son Rehoboam says, now I'm the king and everyone's like, your father was a harsh person. In what way? <laughs> well, how did the temple get built? They didn't pray at night and find in the morning that bricks were put on there, but there was something maybe with slight echoes of Pharaoh in how Solomon uh, reached that great achievement for God. There was something built into it that maybe signals this is good in the way that anything good in our world is, in a, in a fallen world. There's corruption within it. And so you, you, you see the kings after him. So uh, immediately after Solomon, there's a split. And Jer uh, Jeroboam says, I'm going to make Samaria the center of the north, and I'm going to create different worship places in Bethel and Dan so the people of Israel don't lose their loyalty to me and go to the one place God has commanded, the temple in Jerusalem. That did not work out well. Uh, the Assyrians come in and destroy the nation, destroy these idols, and uh, the northern tribe's gone forever, unrecognizable. But that couldn't happen in Jerusalem because it was the place where God was present and yet you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and they warn unless there is change God is not going to let this keep going and eventually the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple and they're taken away but God says but I will bring you back and so then you read Ezra and Nehemiah the historical books where they come back and what is the first question should we rebuild the temple and some people say no but Ezra yes let's rebuild it and there are interesting things in there if you read through Ezra there's the the people of the land who say, hey, we'll help you build the temple. And Ezra says, no thanks. Who are the people of the land? Well, these are the people that resettled Samaria. Uh, they're people that had intermingled during, the, during their exile, and they come back, and it's not clear if they're purely Jewish or if they're, they're intermarried. They're Samaritans. 
And so Ezra says, we don't want you helping us build a temple. We will build our own temple. And he builds a temple where people, the oldest generation who saw the earliest one, were like, this is wonderful that we're back in our land. It's wonderful God is now present with us. But they weep because the temple does not have the glory of the previous temple. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment. What is John doing as he's telling this story? Well, there are these signs, these seven signs. The first sign happens in Cana of Galilee. So Jesus and John begins his ministry in the north the place where the tribes were exiled. And he comes back, uh, he, he shows a messianic sign of wine, abundance, and then he comes to Jerusalem, not with a miraculous sign, but a sign that the temple is coming to an end, and then he returns to Cana for his second sign, but he returns through Samaria. So the passage we're looking at today, he's driving people out of the temple. Next week, interactions with Nicodemus the Pharisee. They're actually connected. Here's somebody that was there who who had that God-seeking instinct, and so he follows up, but then he goes to Samaria, and there's this woman, and what did Jesus and the woman talk about? Where do you worship? And she says, your people say we need to worship there, but, but we worship here, uh, and here's our story, and Jesus says, well, actually, the Jews were right, but the time has come when all people everywhere will worship on neither mountain, but in spirit and truth. And then the people of Samaria come, and they believe, and Jesus returns to Galilee. John is telling the story to say that those who are seeking God everywhere, the time has come with his arrival that it has been made possible. So then you pick up with this second temple, the, the temple that's less glorious from the time of Ezra, hundreds of years before Jesus. Why do the Pharisees, or, or, or I keep saying Pharisees, but the people who respond to Jesus say, it took 46 years to build this temple. Well, there was a great temple building project uh, that took place in the 40 or 50 years prior to this incident. And what person really expanded the temple, renovated it, made it glorious? It was Herod the Great, an ironic name. Not very great from the perspective of the Bible. When the, when the outsiders come in that famous Christmas story, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod says, wait a second, I'm king of the Jews. I'm building God's temple. We better find out where this king would be born. Is it, is it Bethlehem? Kill the male children. Because I'm the king of the Jews. And one of the, he did various building things, but he, he expanded this temple. For the people overseeing the temple to say, it took 46 years to build this temple, it clues us into the fact that they're part of this. So, so Herod was not a, he was, he was an Edomian, from, there was an Edom in him, but he was kind of viewed like a Samaritan. Real religious zealots didn't like him, uh, and yet he was there, but they were under the Roman Empire. Everything is a mess, and Jesus comes and says, the time is coming when God is going to do something new and great, but the people that were invested in, in improving the old, in their overlap with the empire and the corrupt, um, that's the complicated situation Jesus enters into. So you look at, at the story of the Bible, and again, there's a lot throughout the Bible about the temple. The last two books of the Bible, in the way that Christians typically order them, and how if you just go out and buy an ESV or an NIV Bible, Malachi is the last book, Zechariah is the second to last book. Malachi 3, one day, uh, God's Savior will come. Malachi 3, 1, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, how's John telling his story? In the beginning was the Word, and he became flesh. And here's God who's with us. And who do we meet? John the Baptist, who comes to prepare the way. And then as John tells the story, it feels like suddenly Jesus shows up at the temple. It wasn't in John's telling at the end, but, he, but here it is. John prepares the way, and Jesus comes, and he does something that they're not ready for, so they don't understand it. And so, you know, Jesus' words in verse 16 to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The last words of Zechariah, the last chapter of Zechariah 14, where Zechariah says, but one day, a day of the Lord, it will be a day where God comes and he defends Jerusalem and those of the nations who have the eyes to see will come and worship. The last, very last verse of Zechariah 14 on that day of the Lord, there will be no traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. So when Jesus comes and he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade, he's not just angry because people are selling things. You know, these people were actually providing a service that it became corrupted, but, but imagine you lived in Galilee and you needed to celebrate the Passover and you had to walk days with an animal that may die along the way or bump into something and get cut and you could only offer a perfect sacrifice. It made sense, it was practical. What, you know, just walk here and we will sell you an animal. We won't take that corrupt money that the Roman government has given you, but we will, we'll exchange the money. The reasoning was right. It's the kind of thing that we do all the time, which is why we need to be careful. But there was more happening than simply an economic critique. Jesus is saying, there are traitors in the house of God, not traitors, traitors in the house of God, and the time has come where God is sending them away because of this broader fulfillment. So where does John begin? He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and then profoundly, the word was God. What a claim about Jesus. So when Jesus comes, what is Jesus doing? He's bringing the presence of God to earth. So John 1.14 says, and that word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. And that's, that's tabernacle imagery. When did God dwell physically among his people? Well, as they wandered in the wilderness, it was in the tabernacle. As they created a nation, it was in the temple. And John is saying the tabernacle was about where humanity would meet with God. And now Jesus has become that reality. When Jesus comes, do you want to know God? Well, that door to Eden is closed, but Jesus says, but I'm the door. I'm the way. Is it truth you want? I'm the truth. Are you in darkness? I am the light. Jesus is making a claim that access to God is being opened in his arrival. And now it's not that the whole world needs to travel to Jerusalem to visit God at the temple, but from Jerusalem, God will go out to the whole world to restore this new creation vision that was never realized from Genesis 2 because of our turning from God. So this long-time problem, can man and God dwell together? is complex. The Bible shows we constantly get it wrong, and God patiently does what he can to enable it. But there's something climactic in Jesus coming that answers that ultimate question. And so here's the, the third and last question that, that I, as we begin, uh, or as we're going into this, is why can we live differently now? So Jesus has come, and the claim is his coming radically changes everything, which means we can live differently. Why is it that we could live differently? And so in verse 19, Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Completely understandable why they misunderstood that. 
But he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. So he refers to himself as the temple, and that's where, that's where this uh, unfolds, that Jesus is claimed to be the very Son of God, the very presence of God, the place where God's worship will be, the place where the ultimate sacrifice will be performed, the place where celebration will happen. All of these things, he's saying, is if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. So they wrongly think he's talking about the temple. I can understand that. But Matthew's account, Jesus' unjust trial, they get two people that come and say, he said he was going to destroy the temple. He didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. And then when he's on the cross, Matthew records them saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, look at you now. They're on the cross. Can't even prevent yourself from getting crucified. And all of us are currently doing that not being crucified at this moment, and you can prevent that. And so you claim that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. And Jesus was saying, or, or in a sense, what's communicated is, he's not saying he will destroy the temple. Jesus was saying, you will destroy the temple. I'm saying I will raise it up in three days. He was talking about himself, but the irony of these leaders under Herod, the problematic king, under Caesar, the problematic empire leader, Let's hand this person over to them to destroy him. Talk about reaping what you sow. The very people will, within a generation, come and destroy your own temple. That's what happens when you turn from God. And so there's Jesus who comes, the very Son of God, to say, I will bring God's presence. And as a sign that we don't want God's presence, but we drive him out, um, Jesus says, but when you destroy this temple... I will raise it up in three days. We are a uh, death-producing people. We have a life-producing God. We crucify the Savior. He comes back to life and says, now things have been changed. Now uh, the whole of history is turned around. So, so for many of us, the only knowledge we really have of the temple is, is sacrifices for sin, just because of its relevance. And no doubt the irony by by handing Jesus over at this Passover time, the high priest saying it's better for one person to die. All of these things coming together, they didn't realize that Jesus was being offered in a sense as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But then you read through the temple and the temple was a place for festivals, come and celebrate. It's a place to have thank offerings. It's a place uh, to support the work that God is doing so there could be healing. And so when Jesus comes back to life, he has been offered. He gave himself up so that our sins could be forgiven. That the very God who we drive away can open the door and welcome us back because he extends forgiveness. He, he bears that hostility. He bears that sin. So that in coming back from the grave, he now makes it possible that the extension of the hand of grace is so that anyone who wants to know God and have life in him can come. And that's why Jesus says, come to me. It's not that God doesn't like options. It's that there are a lot of bad options. And Jesus is saying, God has made the way that no human being has figured out. And what does that mean? There's a door. There's a, an entryway. There's a, a portal. And so the resurrection, new created, John says, I've written this so that you would have life. And Jesus is saying in various ways, come to me, you will have life. And it's, it's life from the dead, it's new creation, and it, it, it changes our reality. So you pick up the New Testament, various places, you could look at Hebrews, you could look at Ephesians. I'm just going to read to you First Peter 2. 
uh, verses 4 to 5, writing to an exiled, suffering church, he says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it's that story of the the good shepherd who leads us, of the wise teacher who instructs us, but also as the true priest who offers himself. He becomes the cornerstone. There's a new house of God being built. So this sign is this old house that God used is no longer going to be here. And so where will you find God now? Jesus says, well, you could find God in any nation, among any people, where the Spirit is and God is worshipped in truth. And so then there's a, a living house of God that we are invited to be part of, where Jesus is the cornerstone. It's that foundation of who he is, what he did. He continues to be the way that the Father and the Father's children are connected. But what that means is uh, there, there are at least um, two things. One is, for any of you who have that question, how can I know the Creator? Or maybe you're committed to Christianity or some religion, but, but it's the God of rules who oversees history in a cosmic way. But God is not personal. What Jesus says is, when, when you come to me, you, you, don't, you don't need to make a pilgrimage to a foreign land. He sits in the heavenly realms and he pours his spirit out and you have his word and you have his community. And you can know God. What does that even mean? What, I mean, it's still for me years later, what a weird thing to say to know the creator of the heavens and the earth. But, but we have the scriptures and we have what Jesus says and we have the promise of resurrection. And so we can know true things. We can believe that God is with us. We can have that personal experience that we're not just going through, you know, we're just not a religion because that's what people do, but, but we believe that God is real and God gives life. And so, um, one of the things for us is when, you know, I just think of my own story, and everybody's different. My story is certainly not your story, but, but Jesus saying, come to me to find God, and I was thinking, well, why don't you come to me? <laughs> um, the mistake I didn't know I was making is, you know, I was looking for something that would, would fit into my life. If you find a God that fits into your life, you have found a God that is so far smaller than the actual God that could transform your life. Jesus is saying, look, at the end of the day, I'm the one who comes to you. You wouldn't even be listening if I didn't call you. But I'm showing you that if you come to me, I will, I will open a way to God. I'm, I'm like that portal. And so, so come, and you will find a God that doesn't necessarily fit your life, but, a, but you will see that you fit into what God is doing in history, and that's actually far more profound. And from that meeting place to be a worshiping community that comes together as we do, well, let's seek God together. Yet you could have stayed home and prayed. But this living house is meant to have a physical manifestation where we come together and Jesus says, break bread and eat it together. It's a sign of this new life community. And it means that when we come and we meet with God and so we have access to the creator of the heavens and the earth, we then go back into our ordinary six-day week. But we bring the presence of God, having met with God and worshiped, which means that we're repurposed. We're a life-giving people. In light of the resurrection of Christ, and we understand the scriptures differently and God's purposes differently, we now understand our purposes in the world differently. We're not just passing time because God is patient and waiting to bring us to heaven, 
But God has left us here so that we would be a people with resurrection life going out into the world. I'll give one example of this. Right now uh, is a tough time for any kind of institution, businesses, whatever the case is, because the world has become so flexible. So as a church, one example, our children's ministry. We want to really love the, the kids, and every week we have teachers that commit to six or eight weeks, and it's really valuable. But right now, most people are, are sort of thinking, you know, life is more flexible. Can I commit to six weeks? Or I commit to it, but I've got a fever on Saturday night. Maybe I can't come tomorrow. Right now, everything is harder. So, yes, there, there's maybe a passive-aggressive pitch here to sign up for the children's ministry, but that's not why I'm raising this. The reason I'm raising this is because right now, we really do need people in the children's ministry. And so what you'd think we would do is to say, let's, let's shrink down what we're doing to make sure that with the few resources we have, we're using them. Uh, and it wouldn't be selfish to say to care for our kids would be valuable. But instead this year, we said we're going to start a ministry to children that actually don't go to our church. And by starting it, we were not the, the but we were helping uh, the, the work at the grant houses to tutor kids every Saturday. So that's, you know, in the past, we've done once a month here, once a month there. Why every Saturday this September? Uh, we don't really have the bandwidth. Now, fortunately, we're not doing this ourselves. We're doing this in partner with, with others. But, but it's a big ask. But one of the reasons that we say that mission is a fundamental practice of the church is we can't neglect our kids, and we don't want to burn out our people at all. We're not trying to make you more busy than you can handle. But we are trying to say if we come together and we see the life-giving God, there's something about going back into the world where people are not thriving and having that same life. And, you know, as a church, you kind of hope we're going to love these families and maybe they'll become part of our community. And the reality is none of these kids may ever come. So why would we use our limited resources to serve them? Well, because Jesus has come and opened the way to God. <laughs> and we see what he graciously gives us that we don't deserve. And then he says, now go back into the world and continue to worship God. It's not the James Chapel where God meets with us, but, but he meets in a particular way with his gathered people. And then we go back into the world as people who have spirit and truth. And that's one application. Here are kids who don't come to our church. And we're not going to talk about Jesus explicitly, but we're going to bring the Spirit of God and we're going to hope that their future could be better if we give them a few hours a week. And that's the kind of thing that this new creation reality, if, if you start to rethink, if Jesus has come not only to put an end to the old problem of alienation, but to begin a new reality of life with God, um, it's remarkable what we can do. And so I want to encourage you, worship God in spirit and truth. Um, Come on Sunday, worship with us, or go somewhere on Sunday, worship with God's people. But on Monday to Saturday, continue to worship God, because <laughs> he's the life-giving God. If he's given life to you, share that life with someone else. Let me pray for us. Our Father, there are deep things here that, that we don't even understand, and Lord, forgive me if I've misrepresented or misspoken on anything here. But we long to know that there is something more to life, that you could be known that there's more to life than rules and morality. There's more to life than passing the time until some future payoff. But you are with us now. You sent Jesus into the world to be present with us. And, and by kindness and grace, with all of our current flaws, with all of our current misunderstandings, you still invite us and you still forgive us. And remarkable, you still use us, that in our own exhaustion, Somehow, as we go back into the world, anytime we imitate Christ in some small way, there's an echo that, that you are now everywhere, that your image bearers all around the globe are inviting people to worship. So, Lord, help us to worship.
Help us as a church and help any here as individuals to live so that we're inviting people to see you and to worship. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.